Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Jesus Collective podcast. Um, I'm Shauna Boren. More importantly, we've got Paul Walker. And more importantly than even Paul Walker, we <laughs> do have a guest today by the name of Johnny Morrison. And we're really excited to talk to Johnny, to engage in conversation, dive into his book a little bit. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Paul, first, how Hi. are you, sir? What's I, going I, on in your world? Oh, so much is going on. My days are very full. I'm in this season where it's just like... There's like no space in between the meetings. They're just like piling up on top of each other. And it's like, there's a, there's a part of that as someone that's a bit of a achiever that really loves it. And then part of me that is learning as a wise leader to have good like space and boundaries mm-hmm. to like, hold on, like don't get too excited. Right. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I'm an Enneagram three. So I just want to achieve everything. And that's, I got to keep on top of like, don't, don't lead too much into that. I yeah. Guess. Uh, but yeah. I will say, I, I do find it weird that you say more importantly, Paul Walker. I'm like, I don't think I'm more <laughs> important than you, Shauna. <laughs> Come on now. It's all right. It's Well, people have heard your voice more for sure of late with um, our, our podcast. And that's good. It's necessary and good. I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> hey, what's going on in your world, Shauna? How, how are things with you these days? You know, I was, I resonate with what you said about the busyness and trying to achieve it all. I keep telling people like in meetings, like I have a hard stop at this time because I literally have like no transition space to get to the next thing. So that's something I should probably pay attention to if I, if everything I do is a hard stop at this time and there's no space for, Hey, further chat or, you know, dialogue or whatever. Um, so busy, but good. And excited uh, to be here and to have this conversation with Johnny and just really thankful. Like, if you think about Jesus Collective and all of the folks involved, we've got a rich, rich, rich pool of resources from which to pull from in in the form of humans that are just so gifted and talented and anointed. And it's really cool. It's like really cool. We are just really lucky. And it totally like fits into one of like our our values that we're trying to live into as Jesus Collective, like this idea that we do relationships and we do resources. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, we often disco- uh, discover that both of them come together. That our greatest mm-hmm. resources are people, mm-hmm. and our greatest people actually produce some pretty freaking amazing like resources. And yeah, is so that really- the same? So you cut out there. Your mic's cut out, Shauna. Oh, no. There you go. Am I back? Okay, you're back. What were you going to say there? We'd always well, edit see, this see, now out. it's like, is it even worth it? I was just going to, I was just saying, is that the same as resources, honestly? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, I'm just excited because today we've got two Americans on with one, because usually I'm outnumbered. Usually I'm like with mm-hmm. the Canadians. And so thank you, John. For for being here and um, doing that, and Johnny would also say resources instead of however you say it, Paul. How do you say it? Resources? No, that's not 
how you say it. Resources. Resources. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. It. There's like a British inflection to that. Resources. Mm-hmm. Y'all are so bougie. Uh, all right. Aluminum. All of that. Hey, I used to live in pastor in the UK, so sometimes it comes up. It comes up. Like, all especially right. when I like shocked and surprised, I'll be like, you what? And they're like, <laughs> I, was, I just love that. That's the classic British phrase. You what? Mm-hmm. I'll beg mm. you pardon. <laughs> like, I just love it. Love it. There you anyway, go. Johnny is anyway. waiting yeah. for us Johnny's to like, anywho, I'm here. <laughs> Can you believe that our guests just sit while we talk? I know. And just like, I know. They're the best. They're, they, Johnny, you're going to get paid double what we're paying. Double, <laughs> double what our usual rate is. That's right. Okay, seriously though, welcome Johnny. We won't give you a proper introduction in a moment, but we do just want to give you a space to say hello, let your voice be heard because it's been Paul and I shenanigans up to this point. No, it's good. I like it. I'm just here as a spectator and a viewer. Uh, This is the most fun I've had all day, so... Well, I can watch this TV show for a while. <laughs> well, you must not you you must ha- not have a lot of fun in your life. <laughs> or you guys are just really fun. I don't know. Oh, I, I, mean, I listen to that. The, it could be. That. I listen to the Jesus Collective podcast all the time, but I always stop right when you guys get to the guest because I'm only there for you two. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. And now Johnny, in the twinkling of an eye, became our favorite guest ever. So there you We're go. We're a triple his rate now. That's right. <laughs> triple our usual rate. <laughs> getting double the bonus. Uh, Johnny, will you just say hey and tell the folks where you are joining us from just so they can, maybe they want to get out their map and, you know, pinpoint it, um, but just let folks know where you're joining us from. Yeah. Hey, I am uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah. So in the Rocky Mountain West of the United States, uh, right next to Colorado, Arizona. For those of you who are not in the United States, we're the, we're the best part of the Rocky Mountain West. Yeah, yeah. Right? beautiful. I, my, I've driven through Utah. I usually like. I don't know what's the best about it, but it's like where the Rockies <laughs> turn from mountains, uh, and it's like they collapse into the desert. That was my impression mm-hmm. of it. Is that is that what best is? You like when the mountains turn to the desert? Is that what mm. it is? I mean, honestly, that's a pretty good description. Uh, Utah is yeah high desert, so we're like high elevation desert. So you get the like the peaks in this the altitude of like Colorado, but then you have this just beautiful desert in Southern Utah with the arches. If you've seen like the arches national park and Bryce Canyon and Zion. So you just have so many different kinds of wonders Mm. to explore. So if you're an outdoorsy person, uh, Utah is kind of the best you can get where I'm 30 minutes from world-class skiing and I'm 30 minutes from the desert and 30 minutes from like world-class fly fishing, like anything that you want to do outdoors. I'm, and I live in the city. Like I live in the heart of downtown and I'm yet that close to everything else. Do most mm. people drive Subarus in your state? And like <laughs> yeah. SUVs and stuff like that. Cause like I yeah. find like the, like I drive a Subaru and I just know it's like synonymous with Colorado and a lot of those like mountain places. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Subarus, Subarus for days, Birkenstocks for days. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, like some churches, some churches have cool sneakers, but if you were to come to Missio, the church I pastor, it would be like, who's got the newest stocks or, you know, like what kind of Chacos are those? It's a different kind of footwear game happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whole different kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, very much so. It, does everyone like dress like slightly flannel, slightly like you know? I could go to the mountains today, or I could come to church, or like is that is that kind of the vibe? Or <laughs> that's definitely that's a big part of the culture, especially if you move to Utah. So we have a lot of transplants in the city because uh, we're a big university, big medical industry, big tech industry. And if you choose to come to Salt Lake because of a job, 
the other big reason is you want to be outdoors. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there are lots of flannels, lots of outdoorsy gear. Uh, Sunday rhythms are so determined by like the landscape in which we're in. Uh, and mm. so like ski season is going to mm-hmm. really affect Sunday attendance. Camping season is going to really affect Sunday attendance. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it's a, there's kind of a new, a different kind of rhythm in a place yeah. that's so driven by place and landscape. For sure. We experienced that a little bit in Minnesota just to the degree that we know at our church, um, June, July, and August, we get at like no one's around because it's like those are our months to shine mm-hmm. and to yes. be outdoors and to be up at the cabin or whatever. So we don't plan much for those months because literally people are gone and they're like, I'm not coming to your building. It's yeah. just not 100%. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Same thing here in Winnipeg. Uh very, very similar to Shauna's context. Uh, although it's not really June, it's beginning in June. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's essentially as soon as it starts warming up, people are like, I remember the winter of my discontent. I must flee <laughs> from this right. place and, and bask in vitamin D. Mm-hmm. See, this is what makes Utah both amazing and also hard is there really isn't a bad season. Uh, so we're wow. never as cold because we don't have, we're not humid. So our, our cold never <laughs> drops. Uh, our summers are never humid. Uh, there's not like huge mosquitoes. There's not big bugs. Like, so, and if you go high enough elevation wise, you can leave like 90 degree weather, but be within 30 minutes to like 80 degree weather. So it's kind of like, you're always competing and losing with, uh, the outdoors. Mm. Johnny great... is just endearing himself to our audience. Just <laughs> endearing himself. <laughs> There's All another. Right. Yeah. Before we go into more of like a formal introduction, is there anything no, else? Fine. I just want to name like, there's something else curious about Salt Lake City. Perhaps maybe if you were, uh, viewers are thinking of this uh at this moment it happens to be a capital for all sorts of other religious activity uh so like lds church mormons that's Mm -hmm. that's probably some of your context so do you want to share a bit about that yeah 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 um yeah i feel like there's there's a few things that people know about utah is like if you're an outdoors person you know that it's great for outdoors and if you just know general information you know that we are uh, the sort of homeland, the Zion of the Mormon community. Um, we're, Salt Lake is so fascinating, though. So Salt Lake City, I think, is important to think about almost more like a Portland or a Denver in that it is a very progressive city in the midst of a very conservative state. And I mean that both mm-hmm. politically, but I also mean it religiously. Mm-hmm. So folks who are grew up LDS in the suburbs, both south and north of the city, move into Salt Lake City, deconstructing their faith. It's a different kind of deconstruction, but people in sure. constructing Mormonism for years come into the city to live a life that is, uh, in many ways, like counter-cultural to the Mormon church. So I don't know if anybody's seen it, but like a, many years ago, a movie came out that was very famous for Salt Lake City called SLC Punk, which is this like kind of important punk film highlighting the punk culture in Salt Lake City, which is actually very dominant because it's such a response to Mormonism. Mm. Um, and that's where we are. So our our ministry context is um, post-religious and uh, deconstructing, but it's not primarily deconstructing like evangelical faith expressions. It's deconstructing uh, Mormon faith expressions. But then if you go 20 minutes south or north of where we are, you can find yourself in communities that are 90% LDS and may have wow. one uh, non-Mormon church, Catholic, Protestant, like, and then we're not even talking Jesus, like, like Anabaptist yeah. expressions of Jesus center, like the landscape changes. So we have a few churches that we've supported and planted 
further south of us and their ministry experience is so different even mm. than ours just 20 minutes north of them or whatever mm. that's such a curious like urban and then rural divide like I, I see that in my own context here that like uh, some of the communities south of Winnipeg tend to be ultra conservative. Like we even have high population of like Hutterites and like old school Mennonite communities mm-hmm. and then come to the city and like even the way people vote, it's like very progressive, um, politically progressive, all of that. And it's just curious that those dynamics, like they can coexist in some interesting mm-hmm. ways. Mm. Mm-hmm. How long have you been in Utah, Johnny? So I'm uh, born and raised. Oh. Whoa! Yeah, born I did and raised. That. Yep. I don't know why I yep. would have, but I just I I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, born and it's that's it. That, your response though is very funny. It's the response that almost everybody who shows up at church gives to me when they found out that I'm a local. I, I don't know if this is true of other people's context, but there's like there's just not many Christian locals in the city. Yeah. And so, so much of our yeah. church is transplants from somewhere else, and so like what? There's like four of you that I know. You know? <laughs> wow. I. D- Okay, this could be a whole nother show, but I'm just fascinated by how you occurred, born and raised, <laughs> where you did. Like, yeah. wow. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. My my folks are transplants. So okay. they moved here um, from California primarily. My mom is a product of the Jesus movement in California. Oh, yeah. Um, jumped like the, the, just, the movie just came out Jesus Revolution and we went and saw it with her and she was like I was there that's my first job like <laughs> I went to that tent meeting you know like that kind of product of it wow um, she moved to Utah for work and then my dad had moved here uh, running from the law uh, and uh, they met at a church um, where he got saved um, got married and then um, had me so I'm a product of two transplants coming to Utah for different reasons wow. and uh, here I, I am. love that gritty side of the story. I'm like running from the law. I'm like, oh, this is like a good rom com or something. Yeah, <laughs> no, it is yeah. a good rom. Yeah, but the, he's the uh, bad boy. She's yeah. the yeah. Yeah, my dad. Is she like a business like boss now? Like, is she a boss babe? Your mom? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't say that, but yeah, she <laughs> no, is a boss. I, please don't. <laughs> We should probably introduce, you know, all this stuff that we're going to talk to Johnny about. So over to you, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I was having too much fun with, you yeah. know, the Well, the she's going to love stuff. that. If oh, she, good. She's going to listen to this and be like, yes, I like Shauna. So that's what she's going to say. It's hard Perfect. not to like Shauna. It's hard. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> true. That's true. All right. All right. Professionally speaking, uh, <laughs> there are so many reasons why we have Johnny on today. However, he does have a book that is coming out or has come out because we come has come out. Okay, great. And we'll let you share about um, where folks can find that Johnny in a bit. But really quickly, who is Johnny Morrison? For those of you who don't know, he is a church planter, pastor, and writer known for his integration of creativity, spirituality, and culture. Johnny and his wife, Tori, live in Salt Lake City. We've just been talking about that, where they like to explore, host their friends, and spend time outdoors. Shocker. (laughs) Johnny is also a part of our Jesus Collective Extended Leadership Team, and you might remember him from a previous episode where we interviewed him on the topic of co-leadership. So today we are chatting with Johnny. It's going to be great. It's already been a good time. Um, But in particular, we want to focus on his recent book, Light as Air, Practicing Authenticity 
but <laughs> sorry, practicing authenticity, depth, and purpose in a world of empty promises. Love, love that. And honestly, I'm just going to say best intro to a book I've read in a very long time. So oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. First, I totally mean that. Absolutely. So welcome officially to the podcast, Johnny. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has already been so fun. And it's just awesome. you now. Like you got no backup. So like more pressure for sure. So, it's true. Yeah. yeah. The, the last time I was on here, I was with my co-pastor. Uh, and so we, you know, she carried most of the weight on that interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's get into your book. Uh, this book, Light is Air. And really, like I love like engaging with this. There were some, so many great uh, insights. And I will say I was really intrigued by it because I was like, so what, what is he going to say here? And then as I was like going chapter by chapter, I was like, wow, there's some real meat here, some real depth. And so just like a lot of like, well, one, I think it's it's a really great way to engage the mm-hmm. various subjects that, that you kind of cover here. And obviously this big topic about like our desires and things like that. So like in the intro of the book, like you're talking a bit about like this idea of you want to write a book and you're observing like dissatisfaction in the wider culture. And I'm curious, just as a starting point, can you share a bit about that? Like what made you go on this project and yeah, what you were noticing at the time? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. That is encouraging to hear. Um, So I would say the origin story of the book, there's like a few different spheres that started motivating me to write it or domains that I was paying attention to. I started writing the book in 2016, which is like during and after the election of Donald Trump. And I heard an activist say recently that Trump was not the reason we did protest or activation, but his administration did define the temperature of the water in which we were swimming. And so I think to not name that would be to miss yeah. a huge thing. Yeah. And and the question that I was asking, I think so many pastors and Christian leaders and thinkers were asking, and just Christians were, th- were asking is like, how did a Christian community that prides itself on high character, on the ethics of Jesus vote for this person as the best representative of our movement. And the more I explored that, the more I felt like that was a expression of a deeper dissatisfaction with the political status quo, with our religion, so to speak, with the leaders that we had elected or the leaders that had been representing us. But then as I explored that dissatisfaction, it led me to other places of attention. And I started just having conversations with people in my church. And what I realized is like there was deep senses of dissatisfaction about lots of things in our churches. I would sit with couples who had gotten married under the promise that marriage would be fulfilling. And as it wasn't fulfilling in the way they thought it was going to be, that dissatisfaction started to metastasize into resentment, into contempt. I saw people bailing on their marriages. I saw people frustrated with their jobs, you know, like the church itself, because it was failing to deliver on some set of promises they believed that it had made to them. And then as I peeled that back even further, I think what I realized is like, oh, I'm, if I'm honest, like I'm experiencing dissatisfaction in the same kind of way. It's like I grew up in this institution. I grew up in faith. It's been a beautiful story, but as I analyze it and evaluate it and look at my faith and look at my politics and look at my relationships, I think there is sort of like an abiding sense of dissatisfaction under there that I'm trying to mask and hide. Mm. Um, and so it was, it was like, it's like if I played back the layers from one place, it led to dissatisfaction in other places. Mm. 
I thought it was so interesting, Johnny, when you, um, one of the reasons why I said like the intro of your book was one of the best I've read is because I was just immediately drawn in by that study or the class that was going to be offered at Yale of all places. Do you want to, people need to read the book, but let's just give them a little bit of a taste as to how you opened it with, with that story. Yeah. So, um, Yale did, um, and a few other Ivy League colleges did this, and then the class went online during the pandemic. But Yale did a course on basically how to be happy in a collegiate setting. And when the class opened, it immediately swelled almost within the first day and second day to the largest registration that Yale had ever experienced in a college course, which is, I, it feels wild to me that of this like prestigious university of all the classes they've ever offered of all the like opportunities for learning that you ever have a class on how to be happy is the one that swelled in registration the most and then if you follow that story through they didn't offer the course again but then they made it an online course Mm -hmm. that released around the time of covid and the amount of people that took it during the pandemic was again monumental like millions, right? Like millions, millions. of people were taking the class. Oh I was even having gosh. a friend of mine read this book um, earlier this year or uh, end of last year um, who didn't know I had talked about that story. And she was like, oh, yeah, I took the class. Like she was like, I was, it was in the middle of the pandemic. I was like isolated at home. I was feeling like, you know, kind of desperate, alone, sad. And she's like, so I found this class online and I took it. And I've heard a few stories like that from mm-hmm. how influential And the course was, uh, it wasn't a traditional academic course. They're not talking through um, like psychological principles. They're not really talking through theory. It was very pragmatic. Like what are the skills and tools that people need in Mm -hmm. order to be happy? And the course was uh, pass-fail. Like you had to do an assignment that they referred to as a hack yourself assignment, which I still think is very campy, but kind of like. I love that. Yeah, yeah, about how to... Uh, about how to be happy and how to do this work. And then Harvard picked up a very similar course and had a similar experience where uh, registration rates for it swelled, Mm. Um, which I thought was just such an interesting example of you have in a prestigious university that basically guarantees for graduate success. Absolutely. If you go to Yale, the connections it makes, the opportunities it provides, the reputation that comes with it basically guarantees that your life is set up for success. And yet in that environment of like maximized success and a maximized ability to achieve the American dream, so to say, people still felt so unhappy. They took a mm-hmm. course in the basic skills mm-hmm. of learning to be satisfied. It's a fascinating thing to pay attention to as Christians. For sure. Absolutely. And which is why I love you talking about dissatisfaction. I mean, I don't mm. love that that's a thing that we're talking about, <laughs> but that's just the reality, right? And yeah. like you said, 2016 is here in the States, the election. And we saw a lot of dissatisfied folks respond to a certain candidate. And then in in response to that, a huge number of dissatisfied folks were responding to those dissatisfied folks and this the divide just grew. And that is just, uh, it's just, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and so part of the project of your book is to explore why we feel the way that we do mm. and what leads to our dissatisfaction in our hearts and in our world. So why is it important for pastors and leaders and, you know, Jesus followers and lovers to dig deeper into this cultural analysis that you've done? And what do we miss out on when we accept the default explanations for our dissatisfaction? Mm. That's a, I, That was really wordy, Johnny. I'm sorry. That was good. That was good. That's a good question. Um, so the first part of that question is why should pastors and leaders pay attention? Um, 
I think we cannot afford not to pay attention if mm. we believe our work takes place in real time, space, and with real people. Yeah. yeah. The things yeah. the things that we're wrestling through here in terms of dissatisfaction are what our folks are experiencing. Yes. And if you were pastoring during the pandemic, for example, like yeah. you saw it, you saw it exert itself in your community. And mm-hmm. Sure, maybe the pressure has been relieved a bit from that like kind of intense situation post the pandemic, but we're talking about marriages, we're talking about families, we're talking about singleness, we're still talking about all these things that are at their core connected to what do we want, what do we desire, what do we mm-hmm. love, what is fulfilling us. And so I think as pastors, this is the basic bedrock of our work, Um talking about desire and imagination and hope and dissatisfaction. So I think for pastors, we can't afford not to. Leaders, we can't afford not to. And then, Shauna, the second part of your question was, remind me again. What do we miss out on when we, okay, yeah. So, yeah, what do we miss out on when we accept the default explanations for our dissatisfaction? Mm. Mm. I think my conviction and, and the argument that I'm trying to make all throughout Light as Air is that we are made to desire so much more. Uh, and that yeah. the failure and the inability for us to find satisfaction is not a product of our nature. It's a product of the things that we've been sold. Um, mm. That we are built to long for something heavenly, that we are built to long for something eternal. We are built to long for something really good. Mm-hmm. And the problem in our society in many ways is that we've been offered many counterfeits to that deeper satisfaction. And they're compelling because they do play on something real, which is maybe the other reason we have to pay attention to them and diagnose them as leaders and pastors and Christians is that that most of the compelling counterfeits in our world are playing off of something very true, very real, often very painful in our lives. And what we miss out on is the better mm that I think is made available when we are living as we were intended to as followers of Jesus in the renewed image bearing work of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were made to imagine and desire and find fulfillment in so much more. Mm. I think my next question for you then is it's kind of related to this because like uh, in one of the opening chapters, you you say that you and I and everyone in between are desiring beings. Yeah. We navigate the world, make decisions and set the trajectory of our lives out of the deep well of our hearts. And so it had me curious, like what exactly are we desiring in our various North American subgroups and cultures? And mm. why exactly are these desires leaving us empty? Mm. Like you, you hinted already that they were, they're not doing what we want them to do. Leave yeah. us wanting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first, I, I'm so glad that you brought this up. I think the first thing that is important to name is that we are desiring beings and that we navigate the world out of our desires. Uh, our lives chase what we want. Um, like, isn't there a two trillion dollar advertising industry built on this premise? Yeah, a hundred percent desires, right? A hundred percent. And I think as Christians, it's really important for us to recognize this because we often think that the solution to all Christian problems is more learning, mm. um, is that we can learn our way out of what our heart wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but we, what as G.K. Beale says, is we become what we worship for ruin or restoration. Like our oh, heart chases yeah. something. Mm-hmm. And so if we're not engaging the heart, we're going to be missing the the 
this is so cheesy, the heart of the problem. So we have to be engaging the heart. So we have to know that we are desiring. I love that. But that's not cheesy. That'll preach. No. <laughs> Paul's going to steal it. It's going to be yeah. the title of an upcoming sermon. So don't even worry about it. Not just it. a sermon, a sermon series. A series. Yeah, that's right. It's all you, buddy. You can take it. You can take it. I'll receive so then, yeah, it. First is just naming that we are desiring beings and that we chase what we want. And I think we are actually made to. that. We That's what it means to be made in the image of God is to have these deep loves and this deep well of passion in us that is that calls us to be chased. The second part of that is then how do those desires get formed and take shape within us? And if we are more than just thinking beings, but we are embodied humans that live in space and time with other people, then our desires aren't just thought through. They are absorbed in us through our imagination, through the media that we consume, through the practices that we do. I think it's interesting that so much of Christianity is material, physical, practices that actually shape and form us in a certain kind of way. And the world is also full of material practices that will shape Mm -hmm. and form us in a kind of way. So we're formed, we're desiring beings who are formed by what we do, what we see, the stories that we absorb. And then philosopher and theologian René Girard says that all of that is working within us fundamentally to answer this question of we have a desire for being. Like the the thing that we long for at our deepest core is a sense of self, Mm -hmm. sense Mm -hmm. of identity. And all of these narratives and stories and practices are at some level offering us mediators. This is actually Gerard's language, but is also very biblical language, mediators to our heart's desire. So we look at people, we look at stories that seem to have a sense of self or a sense of being, and then we run after those stories and those practices that we see in other people that seem to have a sense of self that we are so want so much within us. Mm. That's so profound. It makes me think of, I have a friend of mine, her name's Christy Petter Warden. She also is actually sits on the board of Jesus Collective. And uh, she was sharing with me that like one of the biggest questions young people ask is who am I? Like, what Mm -hmm. is my identity? Identity Mm -hmm. seems to be the question of our age so it's, it's curious that you're you're actually drawing a link to that and desire and how we're mm-hmm. longing for that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i just to follow up with that i love that you're naming this but not in a okay so in in my upbringing to even talk about desire was like super taboo it was automatically yeah. assumed to be evil or wrong and and i love that you're like no 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 like we yeah. we are beings made with desire and that's not a bad thing it's just tapping into where where that comes from and what it is that we are desiring and so yes yeah any more unpacking on that you want to do i i'm all ears yeah 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 well it's interesting so i similarly grew up in a uh, pretty, I mean, a beautiful but uh, deeply religious environment. And I think about um, from elementary school to middle school, I went to a private Christian university or like school. And every year uh, we would do what we called Spirit Week. Uh, and we would do the very least spirited thing we could, which is we would talk about sex and Jesus. And <laughs> yeah, uh, which is, I went to public school after that. And when Spirit Week was very different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very different, um, surprisingly. And then the message of, of Spirit Week was always abstinence-based education, right? Many people mm-hmm. who are listening to this are probably really familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to say, like, we can trace the roots of abstinence education. Uh, it may, there's some things about it that do make sense. I'm not trying to criticize abstinence education. 
I'm not trying to criticize repressing desires when they're harmful or hurtful. There's places in our development in our life that that is required, like some kinds of self-discipline. But I think that what we, when we don't willingly talk about desires and we don't name that God gave us desires that are meant to find a fuller end, Mm -hmm. then what we do is we end up repressing desires. And Mm -hmm. I do think it serves as a pressure cooker that it, continues to compress the pressure of our desires. It does not form us into more loving humans. And we see so many of our young people come out of the church and that pressure cooker explodes. Mm. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> literally. I like, and, and that can look like lots of things. Like that can look like, yes, like expressing itself in different ways, but it can also look like frustration and contempt. Mm. It can look like deconstruction. I think like sometimes we're, we're actually when we're talking about what's happening in culture, we want to call it simply deconstruction. When we're actually seeing it's like the pain of repression unravel itself. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the heart of that is like, there was no one was ever given the, the good, beautiful, right picture of what desires are aimed at, what our imaginations could latch themselves Mm. onto. Uh, Mm. Oh, Johnny, you were saying some good, good things. I, I kind of want to take you and travel back yep. in time to my youth group days and just like have you say the things. <laughs> so just to uh, to kind of go down this path a little further, um, why would you say that repression of desire is not a great way? It's not a great discipleship strategy. Why must we mm. learn to love the right things? Yes, Well, I think what we just named is that we've seen it and experienced it, that if we repress our Mm -hmm. desires, it does not heal them. It does not make them whole. Uh, And we know this not just from our own lives. We know this from therapy, psychology, addiction treatment. It's the same principles. Now, is there moments for self-disciplined repression? Yes. I'm not trying to say there's never a moment of that. Some Mm -hmm. things cause harm and we like limit ourselves for the sake of not causing harm. But in the long run, if we don't gain an imagination worth living for, repression is too hard to keep. Like you can't mm. hold those desires at bay that long. Mm. And so I think about, um, so like I think about Augustine. Augustine is an early church theologian who's having a conversation in large part with like the Gnostic movement of faith. The Gnostics were actually really into repression uh, because they believe the material, the physical, Mm -hmm. the desires are bad. And so if you want to reach a spiritual enlightened level, you should repress your desires, try to, they co-opt in Christian language, kill the flesh in order to live Mm -hmm. in the spiritual life. Right. Now, Augustine's response to that is that you will never, you will never deal with the restlessness of human desires through repression. Come on. His argument is that the only way to truly find rest, to deal with what he calls the dissentio anime, the restlessness or the the listlessness of the human soul, is to tend our hearts towards God. Mm. And that language of tending is so helpful to me, because for me, it makes me think of um, what happens when you do the beautiful work of like caring for a garden. Yeah. Like you want a garden to thrive. You want it to yeah. be lush and flourishing intending is that slow, careful work that is sometimes disciplined, that in sometimes includes repression, but that is always about flourishing. It's yeah. always about growth and even abundance overcoming. And so for Augustine, tending is that careful work of aiming our hearts, aiming our eyes, aiming our desires at Jesus, who uh, 
Rene Girard would say is actually the, the way out of our empty cycles. So we mm. aim at the truest human who connects us to our truest heart's desire, following in that, tending towards that, we thrive, we flourish, mm. we grow like a garden that has been well cared for. Mm. Mm. That is so such you, beautiful imagery. Love yes. It. So you've mentioned him a couple of times and I've actually, like I knew for sure I had to ask you this question because throughout your book, you're engaging at, at you engage with a lot of folks, but definitely Rene Girard and, mm-hmm. and mimetic theory and scapegoating and all of that. And I'm actually curious, like why, why do pastors and leaders and, and Jesus shaped folk, like why should they study Girard? What does he have to offer us? And I think I love think you it. probably could say it more succinctly than I could. Oh, I love that question. Um, I mean, I love that question. What a fun thing to be asked. Uh, so I'm <laughs> right? I love here we are. <laughs> it's a Thursday afternoon and we're talking French philo- philosophers. It's good. <laughs> I will That's say so- our mutual friend, um, Jeremy Duncan, we mm-hmm. had him on the podcast mm-hmm. too. And again, there we were talking about dragons and Gerard. And so this is like the second time Gerard's come up in the last uh, couple of months for our, us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. Well, so I, so I love Gerard. I think, um, I think he's just an interesting figure to read. I think is like maybe an important part. I, I tell this story a little bit in the book, but Gerard is doing his collegiate studies while Paris is occupied by Nazis. And I think it is so fascinating to see him historically because what he is often responding to is yes, faith and literature and philosophy, but he's always engaging with what happened in Paris um, during the Nazi occupation and post the Nazi occupation. Like how could people become Nazis? And then the other thing that he really wrestles with is how could people become so cruel once Mm -hmm. the occupation ended to their brothers, sisters, fellow citizens? Like one of the stories that Gerard talks about is that after uh, after the, the war sort of ends, Paris is liberated. Men were uh men would drag prostitutes into the streets and like abuse them, sometimes kill them for having slept with German soldiers. And Gerard is like, can't we understand that they were coerced? Mm-hmm. Like, can't we understand that like they are victims of something and yet mm-hmm. they are becoming scapegoats for our own feeling of impotence and in, and the feelings and insecurities and sacrifices that we made. So I say that because I think Gerard speaks so humanly to very real problems in a way that has been really helpful and liberating to me. And he takes that work, um, this historical, literary, human work, and he begins to dialogue with Christian faith. And he sees in Jesus the, the breaking of those cycles that turn people into scapegoats. Mm. And so Gerard is sort of famous for kind of developing and um flushing out a, a theory of atonement called the scapegoat theory, where Jesus dies as a scapegoat on our behalf. And in dying on our behalf, Jesus ruptures, breaks, unmasks systems of evil, oppression, degradation that continue to spiral out of control in culture. And what I love about that is that Girard's theory is one of the only atonement theories that is so that is solely focused on what happens to us in the atonement. So, so many atonement theories are about what happens to God mm. in atonement, like satisfaction mm-hmm. theory. How is God's wrath, wrath. satisfied? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like 
uh, or how is uh, old school theories of ransom theory? How does God pay back Satan? Is then how does like God overcome this enemy or this obstacle? Which I think is actually confusing because why would God have to overcome the devil? Isn't isn't God God? But atonement through the lens of scapegoat and Rene Girard is that it is fundamentally about breaking us out of cycles of violence, selfishness, mm-hmm. idolatry, limited desire, and. In Gerard's notion, it does something in us. It opens our heart. It frees us from those cycles. Mm. Um, so that's what I love Gerard because I think it it takes the gospel and like his theories and like his ideas, it runs them through history, literature, philosophy, and then mm. applies them in ways that are so deeply human that they are really helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, does that answer that? I mean, that's good. It was a long answer. But yeah. Does that answer your question, Paul? Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I, I also appreciate like I love that like circuit breaker language that especially when we're talking about Jesus and the atonement, this idea that Jesus is the positive memetis or memesis, mm-hmm. right? And I think like you kind of go there a bit later in your book, but uh, yeah, definitely. I think you kind of address that why we need to pay attention to Gerard. I think he's such a gift to leaders, mm-hmm. especially in our age. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, just to follow up. Uh, since we were talking about scapegoating a little bit. Um, can you, Johnny, help explain how our desires can lead to scapegoating and violence and the othering of yes. folks? Yeah, so this is I, this is a moment, again, where I'm deeply indebted to Gerard. The, one of the things that I think makes desires that are uncared for or untended so problematic is that when we have desires that are unmet they don't disappear Mm. i think we all know that like they don't disappear right and if not carefully tended they metastasize and they gerard would say they turn into resentment and that resentment can come from a lot of reasons like the desire was never fulfilled say you're in a marriage and you feel like you continue to ask your spouse for something and the spouse never reciprocates it that can lead to a feeling of contempt because you feel alone you feel isolated you feel like you don't have the power to change a situation those feelings compound in us to create resentment and again resentment doesn't have to live there it can be tended to it can be cared for but again Gerard's like when it is not tended for when it is not cared for, it starts to, like a pressure cooker, boil over in us. Mm. And it will explode and exert itself mm. in reality. And it looks for scapegoats, which are symbolic objects that we can sort of blame for our inability to fulfill our desires. Mm. So there's this, I tell this story in the book um, about, it's right before the French Revolution. There is a, a group of painting apprentices who work for painting masters. And historically, the apprentices are treated really poorly. They're given like scraps of food. They're given food that even the cats won't eat. And they're witnessing their masters live uh, pretty lush lives. And they're even witnessing their masters have cats that live really plush lives. And this continues on until the apprentices explode in violent rage. But the the target of their rage isn't the masters who are actually the cause of their suffering. It's not the system of apprenticeship and mastery. It's not even like the French government. They exert their rage 
on house cats. And they have this like they do this like series of trials and mock rituals where they like try the cats and like judicial hearings, they hang the cats, and it becomes this exertion of rage against this other group expressed mm. on this scapegoat target. In more uh, visceral and serious attempts, I think we saw the same thing happen when white men in Charleston marched yelling, we will not be replaced. Who is replacing you? You're the most mm. powerful demographic in the history of the world. Mm. No, one's, no one makes more money than you. No one has more access than you. No one has more privilege than you. But this is the danger of resentment that is compressed and then exploding is that it doesn't have to be that real it doesn't have to be related to what's factually happening around you for it to find its expression and for it to target scapegoats and scapegoats are almost always the weaker more vulnerable members who have been villainized and demonized in a way that makes them blameable for our inability to get what it is that we so long for. And that longing may be good and real, but it is metastasized into something um, deeply demonic. Mm. Now, another kind of like, not just desire, I think like uh, you've laid it out, like using the work of mimetic theory and scapegoating, you've showed us how this is a negative thing. Uh, but then another thing you do in the book is kind of like point to a common shared desire uh, that we're all handed in our North American culture, which is this idea of commodification. And we often celebrate mm -hmm. commodification in our consumer-based cultures. Uh, but I have to ask, like, how is this leading to our malformation? What is the dark side to those mm -hmm. desires? How is commodification contributing to our own sense of dissatisfaction that you are sensing on a pastoral level? And and even more than that, something I thought that was really cool is you actually helped me to see how commodification leads to injustice. So mm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, so I think part of what happens in us that leads to dissatisfaction is that we are promised a lot. We chase those promises. Those promises are not rewarding. They do not fulfill us. So... Uh, like whether that's the American dream in the United States of like getting the bigger house, of getting the marriage, of getting the car, we get into those spaces and we find that those promises are actually pretty hollow. That has a, an existential effect on our hearts. I think it's wounding and I think it's even in some ways like there is a trauma to desire that is misplaced within us. And so the question becomes like, why are those things so empty? And the argument that I make in chapter three is that so much of our world has been reduced. And the language that I use is commodification, that God created a, a universe that was filled with depth, purpose, meaning, richness. God formed communities that were deep, wide, formed with richness. God formed us to be deep, wide, filled with richness. Mm. And over, especially from about the enlightenment on, we see a process in which the world around us, the people around us, and even ourselves become less than image bearers. We become less than whole and we become reduced to commodities. Mm. And what I mean by commodities is that our value is measured by our productivity and our uh, output. 
and that's true for us personally, but it's also true for the world around us. And so mm-hmm. once upon a time in the ancient world, the world was considered a place of deep mystery. The physical world around us was deeply mysterious, deeply, yeah. to use biblical language, sacramental. Like we thought it was a place that God had imbued with God's own presence. We thought it was, it was like holy. And then all of a sudden it becomes a resource. We even talk about resource management in terms of how do we manage land. It stops being a place that's home. It stops being a place of belonging. It stops being a place that is inherently deep and wide and mysterious. And it becomes just a natural resource. In that same movement, uh, theologian Willie Jennings, who wrote a marvelous book called Christian Imagination, which is the theological origins of race, talks about how that same commodification of place then so begins to other people. And Mm. if place belongs to no one, then anybody can take it and anybody can do whatever they want with it. And we can take you from one place and move you somewhere because that place isn't formative to you. It's not defining to you. It doesn't connect to your identity, your belonging or your personhood. And then the work of it also being that you are not more than a resource. Isn't hard to start to imagine where that Mm. work comes into. And so Jennings connects uh, and he's not the first to do this, but I just think he does it so powerfully in a theological well, way. He's Jennings, one of my favorite African-American theologians. He's just so he, good. He's also a beautiful writer. So if you're just looking oh, for something that will yeah. like, like it hurts, it's so good to read in terms of his writing. Like yeah. th- that book is really good after whiteness, which is his reflection on yeah. education. Um, so beautiful. And but his like, commentary on acts. Sorry to keep going. Oh, on so Jennings. good. Yeah. His comic. No, no, no. Uh, it, this is. Yeah. Yeah. Get those books. Uh, they're really good. Um, so you can commodify place. Then Jennings argument is that we commodify people and we reduce them to commodities. And then the argument that I make at the end of that section is that as we reduce place and we reduce others, like commodification is a stomach that keeps feeding. So then we get reduced. Like we become entrepreneurs that it, we have to invest in and our value is in terms of our output and our, and our productivity and how much we can hustle and how hard we can work. And it's not about who we are as image bearers. It's not about who we know and are in relationship with. And it's not even about belonging to a place anymore. And I think the issue underneath all of that is like we can have that theory conversation, but the issue underneath all of that is that all of the things that gave our previous generations connection, meaning, and belonging have been reduced. Mm. And so then we, I think, feel deeply dislocated. Yeah. And there's a kind of existential homelessness that I think really affects um, modern Western, especially humans, um, that we have, we're disconnected from place, people, and ourselves. And then we're told to run after, that if you want to find meaning, run after making money or run after the American dream or run after this story. Uh, And that also isn't being fulfilling. And so you have a dislocated sense of belonging and a dislocated sense of imagination. It's, it's almost like a form of Gnosticism in that embodiment. So disempowered has perpetuated uh, Mm -hmm. those sorts of things. Like that's why, again, it's just so curious that, that early Christianity is just so embodied that it's practice driven, that it's the scandal of the incarnation in that to place, to people, to presence. Yes. Um, Well, speaking of Jesus, as we do here at Jesus Collective, uh, so like part two of your book here is uh, like you really kind of go and explore this theme of what, 
how the kingdom comes and how that's challenging some of these things and and even reorienting us to a better story. So we could we could put it like this that Jesus has has stepped into a world of disordered desires mm-hmm. of people that love poorly um and he brings this kingdom he announces and enacts this alternative way of living and so one of my first like curiosities though is like so often the story of Jesus has actually been commodified mm-hmm. and and I'm curious like why you think we we've tended to actually individualize Jesus apart from like this wide uh, kingdom political message? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. Why have we um, so disconnected Jesus from his story? Well, I think it is interesting. This is not a full explanation, but I do think it is interesting to look at who we often read when we talk about the just Jesus disconnected story. Like when we start reading theologians who are writing primarily from Western Euro context, post the enlightenment, Mm -hmm. Jesus starts to look uh, like Western European enlightenment traditions. Um, And we see that, I mean, we see that in in some ways that are so insane where Jesus actually becomes white, but then we also see it in that Jesus is reflected of thinking kingdom. I mean, Martin Luther is writing it during the reformation and separates kingdom from physicality ah. and these two kingdoms theories which is i get it i think i want to have empathy for it but it is a reflection of what's happening in the broader context around him this enlightenment the separation of uh the material from the supernatural an attempt in some ways to even protect god from the developments of scientific thinking and scientific inquiry like I, there's reasons for it but you start to see this this separation but you don't see that the reason i name this is you don't see that globally no, it just depends on which voices are talking about Jesus. But if you're mm-hmm. reading theologians and thinkers and pastors and writers who are reflecting on faith from like the majority world, it often looks very, very different, much more embodied, much more kingdom oriented, much more material than mm-hmm. enlightenment traditions. Yeah. Um, so I think I think context is really determinative in some ways of our theological thinking. And we often think that we are disconnected even from our own context and how that shapes our imagination. When the truth is, is we live within a story um, of, you know, a bunch of German white guys who came up with a bunch of good ideas. And then that's where all of our theology came from in some ways in the West. Uh, And so it looks often like that. Mm. Really good. All right, going on. Go for it, Shauna. Okay. I'm just trying to get I think we're waiting have, on each other. We're giving each yeah, other a cue. Yeah. All right. Well, Johnny, in, in your book, you write that we need to be wide awake Christians with imaginations so saturated in the work of Jesus that we confront the world and its broken systems with the means and ends of the kingdom of God. Because in this, we not only confront, but we make real the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. And so tell us how to do it. How do we become wide awake? Like solve the dilemma for us, please. (laughs) How do we avoid, avoid the temptation of falling asleep? Yeah. Yeah. I love, um, that I, that language I stole from Clarence Jordan, who was a pastor and a farmer during Mm. the civil rights movement. Mm. And they form a community called Koinonia Farms where, Black people are going to live together and try to practice equity, which I think is like 
that is where we're getting really close to how do we do this. Yeah. Inspired by a story that unifies people around Jesus in ways that tears down um, divisions, barriers, hostilities, and even upend systems that would tell and communicate narratives of supremacy. They are compelled past that because of the Jesus story and are given practices and experiments that lead them into this uh, expression of faith, Koinonia Farm. And I think like, uh, what I, that feels so uh, beautiful to me is like, what if our own practice of faith out of this developing story of a Jesus who is deeply embodied, deeply in this world, if out of that story, we would then begin to practice together the way of our faith, like mm. folks from the Queen of Farm together. So it's such a, a great, I love that that's the, the reference that you use, because I think it is in some ways an expression of everything I'm trying to do in the second half of the book. It's mm. develop a bigger story that grounds us in a Jesus that I think is deeply embodied, deeply enfleshed, uh, that's offering really good news to a very real world. And then the final section of the book is with material practices that actually get yeah. our hands on our faith mm -hmm. in a way that then dialogue back with our imagination. Um, mm -hmm. And the more that we practice our faith, the more we see it's actually possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a generative effect to that dialogue. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, I, that, that reminds me so much about like the end of the Sermon on the Mount, like building mm -hmm. your house on the rock and this idea of like, we often think the rock is like some confessional belief, like Jesus is the rock, mm -hmm. but like, she's like my teaching, like you won't even understand it until you have this generative process of like living it out creates the kind of hermeneutical possibilities where you're going to understand this more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's keep going. Um, I love, I, I have to like. I feel like, Paul, we just have to name it. Like, I think yeah. we're both just like sitting on Johnny's words and just mm -hmm. taking them in and, and thinking. And so I think people are hearing some pauses, but that's, it's because this is a great conversation and we're, and we're taking it in. So <laughs> it also speaks to the third part of the book, which we'll get, that's our next question, yep. but we'll get there. So just like a little preview. Absolutely. I, I love the way the book ends because he, you'll see in a second. But I have one more question while we're on this um, on this section about the story of Jesus, about continue with that. And it was out of the section where you write, we don't get detailed instructions for our lives, but we get a story that shapes our imagination and helps yeah. us to ask and answer the question, what does it mean to be God's people right here? The problem is we've inherited a reduced story. Our modern story offers very little to the realities of our world. And mm -hmm. so this had me just thinking like, how might pastors, teachers, practitioners, um, how might we begin the work of expanding the gospel story we have? How can we, how can we avoid reductionism? Mm. How can we open up curiosity and wonder that you talk about in this book? Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, what a great question. I mean, there's so much, the story of Jesus is so massive. And so I think like for us as pastors, communicators, Christians, there is a rediscovery process that I think we are joyfully invited into to discover how big, how liberating, how personal to the story of Jesus really can be. So in those three chapters in the middle of the book, it's my attempt to we try to help people who maybe come from a tradition or context who have been given a smaller story 
see the bigger story. So in one chapter, I'm trying to narrate how I think Jesus's work is kingdom oriented. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk about Babylon. We're going to talk about uh, systems. We're going to talk about revelation. We're going to talk about the confrontation with desire and scapegoating. We're going to, we're going to lay that out in a way that I, my hope is that it is really big, really massive, not overwhelming, but like really good news for a whole world, a whole people, a whole system. Then in the middle chapter there, I try to talk through how it is that same kind of good news, but applied to us personally. And so the middle chapter is working through the story of the prodigal son and how Jesus is confronting desire. In many ways, I focus on the elder brother, mm-hmm. now I think is so representative of us as modern, especially mm-hmm. Western Christians who come mm-hmm. from a place of privilege, comfort, and how the story of Jesus and the good news of Jesus is a hard and beautiful truth to those of us whose desires have been malformed. And how what Jesus is doing for the older brother, the father, this is so beautiful. The father goes to the field, chases him down, endures his rage, like that that, that compounded resentment overflows onto the father. Here's an image of atonement. The father endures it, does not silence him, does not shame him, does not judge him, takes it all, and then the father's response to him is the most disarming, Jesus-y, beautiful thing. It's like one of my favorite moments in all of scripture. The father says, everything I have is already yours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's this like, yeah. yeah. Everything, you, all the things that you've been longing for, that, that you've been chasing in these weird ways, like come inside, sit at the table. I want these for you also. Mm. And I want them better than working the fields in order to preserve what you think is yours and living out of scarcity to try to like fight and hoard and exclude other people from getting it. I want to give it to you freely by stepping into the home. And I think that middle moment for us is like, how is the gospel applied to us? How's this big Jesus story? How does it, what good news is it offering? Yes, to the world and then to us. And how is that also a bit challenging? Like to those of us who have, uh, for whether it's good, I mean, it's not good, but we've in some ways benefited from this system around us in some ways. And so to give it up is going to be a challenge. Like, does the older brother actually want to go inside to be reconciled with his younger brother? Yeah. Does he want to give up that exclusion and that place? And he's talking to the religious leaders and the Pharisees. Do they want to hand down the privilege and power that has come with their position to truly be in relationship with Jesus and with one another to sit at the table in truth of their identity and their relationship. But that's a hard die with me kind of ask. Yeah, absolutely. Johnny, I just, I love, I love this part of, of the, the book and what you're talking about here and just your language of reduced imagination, because I feel like not to oversimplify, but I do feel like so much of the polarization that we're seeing within the church, it, it, I think it's, it's because we all have a reduced imagination. Like yes. we can't possibly, we don't give God enough credit for his creativity. Like, mm. I just feel like, come on, like we, if we could just imagine bigger, I'm pretty sure God can handle all of, all of our I'm going to say stuff. I'm going to be kind and (laughs) say all of our stuff, right? And the (laughs) fact that we don't all see it the same way or experience it the same way. And I feel like we we try to put them in a box Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what it is. It's reduced imagination. And I love that you're calling that out and challenging us to think bigger and grander because he is. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that is so true. Um, Like it, it, it feels so, 
yeah, limiting to who God is and limiting to what it means to be God's people. And so what if, yeah, I think there's a, I tell this story or use this illustration in the next chapter, but Tolkien had this phrase for a good story that he called deep magic. Mm -hmm. And it's the way that a story gets in us and shapes us and expands our imagination. And I think because the story we've told is so small and so reduced, like we fight over theories of atonement as opposed to seeing that atonement is so big that it is healing, forgiving, restoring. It is at one meant for the universe. And it's like we've lost like, oh, this is cosmic and systemic and personal. And so now we're busy battling and dividing over something very, very small. Uh, not unimportant, but comparatively. Yeah, yeah, the story we often tell is like shaped towards the outcome of decisions, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, towards afterlife decisions, especially, mm -hmm. uh, and, and sort of the running of like, we need butts in the seat and we need budgets and we need buildings. Mm -hmm. And we tell stories that, that, that put us in that place. They get those results. And mm -hmm. partly because I think a lot of like, especially Western evangelicalism, we've re relegated post-enlightenment a lot of our work to afterlife affairs. Mm -hmm. And we've lost this kind of wider vision that some streams of the church still hold for like an ordering of how, how the world is to run, an ordering of an, an imagination for, for a redemption of all things being reconciled to Jesus. Yes. Um, mm. Mm. Yeah. I, I, there's not one part of Christian theology to me that doesn't feel affected by that kind of reduction. Like I'm going to be, mm -hmm. we're, I'm going to be talking about what is sin this coming Sunday then I feel like we can talk about sin as abstract moral violations, mm. which I feel like is how so many people have heard. It. I had a conversation with somebody this week who is like, is God going to send me to hell for not getting baptized? Mm. And I was like that. I make sense that you have that understanding. It pictures God as a punitive judge. Who's like, mm. yes, keeping a track record. But if we ground what we think about as sin in the story of the Bible of Jesus's kingdom, material work, then our urgency around concepts like sin is not, punishment. John says in first John four, that perfect love dispels fear because fear has to do with punishment. So it's not punishment. Yeah. It's not hell. It's that it hurts. Yeah. It's that it harms that it's like, it yeah. breaks the world around us. And the vision that Jesus is giving us is for a, a flourishing material world here and now. And so I feel like the urgency, the passion, the energy, the bigness is like reinfused back into our faith in a way that mm -hmm that is now compelling again, at least yeah. to me, like it starts to feel like a compelling vision of, of, of life and faith. Mm. Yeah. Like the way I would talk about sin in that like wider, like conception, I would try to open it up is I would actually help people see the, the big story the Bible is telling. Like I would go to Genesis and say like, this is not so much like a moral code. I mean, the only thing there is like, don't eat the tree, right. Or something, but it's actually a failure of, of image bearing, a failure of worship, yeah. that, that sin is less a uh, a moral kind of like legalistic sort of tit for tat, but actually a failure to form our desires. I think that's kind of what you're saying in this book too. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This has been really, really good, but we have like a whole third part of the book that we <laughs> get to. Let's get there. Yeah, let's get there. All right. So you entitle the third part of your book, No Hurry Here. And yep. it's an interesting transition from what we've been talking about in part two of the book. And so I'm just going to ask you like, what, why no hurry here? Why is there no hurry here? Can you just uh, dive yeah. into that a little bit, Johnny? Like give just, us a peek into your mind there. 
Because, yeah, yeah and I'll just add to this because there's a temptation. Once yeah. I'm aware of injustice, I'm like, all right, let's get the signs. Workers of the world unite. Let's go. Right? Form a union. Yeah. Let's do yeah. it. <laughs> yes. I love no, I love it. I thank you for asking that question too and paying and noticing that. Um, I really appreciate that attention. Um, so the the phrase there is no hurry here came from I went on sabbatical in 2018. So I was writing this book in 2016 and then I went on sabbatical in 2018. And my goal was to use that time to rest and to reconnect God and then to write. Uh, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna write. And my very first week on sabbatical, this is May of 2018. I went to a cabin in Colorado. Some friends of mine own it. I was did five days of solitude. And by like eight hours in, the amount of anxious energy that I was experiencing was overwhelming. Um, oh, it was so intense. And oh. I, we were we were right next to a lake. I was, I was right next to a lake. And so I would go on walks to the lake and I would pray and and try to like process why was I feeling this anxious energy? And the phrase that came to me was that phrase, there is no hurry here. And mm. it felt like a reminder from God to slow down, to be with him, to be present to what he's doing, what's happening in the world around me, to see again the sacredness of the ordinary mm. um, and to to use that as a moment of connection. And so it became my motto for all mm-hmm. of sabbatical. Like I would say it, over and over and over again, every time I felt that anxious energy. And the reason I include it in the book is I think that anxious energy comes from the commodification of my desires, that I measure my value, my worth in my output. Mm. And so when I wasn't out, when there wasn't high outputs, and I'm just here to dream and to pray and to rest, the energy that I experienced was just anxiety. It was like that nervousness. It has to go somewhere. Yeah. And Walter Brueggemann says that Sabbath is protest yeah. to the small stories of our world. Yeah. And so I think in this conversation about what are the practices that begin to embed us in the story of Jesus that push back on our shrunk imagination, try to help us expand it. Rest has to be really an essential part of that component because Mm -hmm. it is a protest to those other stories and it is a defiant risk in trust that God is who God says he is and our value is what he says it is, that our identity is what he says it is and the world is what he says it is. It is like us actually risking and experimenting on all these things that we've said about Jesus. And it doesn't feel that way, but that's often how God is. It doesn't feel like we're changing the world by taking a little bread and wine. It doesn't feel like we're changing the world by dying. It doesn't feel like we're changing the world by stopping. Yeah. Kind of seems like Jesus really likes working through mustard seeds, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of seems like, oh, you'll never get away from your faith not being your sight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this reminder, though, because I think as as we become more aware of of all the things we've been talking about, like we we just feel like everything's so pressing, and we have mm. to tend to it now. And because if yes. we don't, that means we don't care, and silence is complicity, and all the things. And and that could all be true. However, we need we need that space and that time, and to not mm. be in a hurry, and just to sit and be and rest. That's such a huge reminder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if we're, if, if so much of what we're doing, this goes back to what we said earlier, is about tending our desires and tending our imaginations. Then part of the conversation we have to ask is what kinds of practices tend our hearts towards yeah. Jesus? 
and uh, rest is right at the top of that list. It's not the only one. There's other yeah. ones. Like I tell a story in the book that like rest is really good, but if you if you give in too much to the vices of rest, there is its own kinds of problems. And so there's vices to hustle and there's vices mm-hmm. to rest and we're made for a rhythm. Mm. Mm. That's good. As you've been talking about like this idea of tending to our souls um, and practices, right? Um, you've also mentioned like this idea of like a beloved community. And this kind of really resonates with our work here at Jesus Collective as a network that wants to resource and equip like a Jesus-shaped movement. And I'm just curious, like, why do we actually, if we want to live into this new alternative story, if we want to receive new desires, all, all this work, if you were to tie all these threads together in this lens of community, how might you say that? Hmm. There's an author and philosopher of Calvin named James Smith, um, who many people probably read. He talks about the community as a republic of imagination, mm. uh, which is a phrase that I just love. Uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and the argument that he's making or the, the point that he's making is that the community doing life together, telling stories together, practicing faith together is a community of, of imaginative formation that as we do this work together, we are helping one another see what is possible. And I think we can see this in lots of ways, right? Like when you, you know, like if you're a pastor and you meet with someone and you encourage them in their gifts, like you're seeing in a really small but beautiful moment, like what is possible when a new story is told over you? Or like there's a moment from one of our house church gatherings, which is like our small groups, where somebody was wrestling with, do they give money to a cause or do they go on vacation to rest? And it was like, we were having Mm. these kinds of conversations. And people in the house church were like, how much were you going to give? And they were like, we'll give that so that you can go on this trip, which then led other people in the group to be like, oh, how can I give to these same kind of moments? As you see that there's this like generative effect to people who are practicing and risking in their faith that it has with one another, that as Mm -hmm. I see you experiment, as I see you practice, as I see you speak life over me, my imagination actually expands to see more of what is possible together through faith. Um, So I think you can't do this in isolation. I love it. I love it so much. It's hard to believe this, Johnny, but uh, we do want to wrap up our time (laughs) (laughs) because we want to have you back. And if we keep you too long, you'll be like, yeah, no, I'm not coming back to talk to these. (laughs) No, I'm having a great Um, time. (laughs) So really quickly, um, can you please let folks know where I do have a final question for you just to, that I want you to leave people with, but before we head into that, can you please let folks know where they can find your book and where they can find more of you if they so desire, or if they're in the Utah area and want to check out, uh, your church or just whatever you want to tell folks. I love that. You said, if you so desire, (laughs) that's just great. Yeah. (laughs) No Where can they desire you, Johnny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can, uh, if you my book, you can get, uh, I think, anywhere the books are sold. Uh, and then you can also find more information at my personal website, which is johnnyis.com, J O N N Y I S.com. If you want to know about Missio, Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah, our website is missioslc.com. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Johnny, so much for being here. Thank you for all that you've shared. And thank you for writing this book. Like, thank you for not being in a hurry and for getting it done (laughs) and putting it out into the world. It is, it is a gift. So I just want to thank you for that. 
And in that book, you write uh, this beautiful phrase, hope dislocated from place and practice is nothing but a dream. That I love that. So hope dislocated from place and practice is nothing but a dream. And so um, in a word of encouragement, how can you let us know the role that practice plays in producing hope for the folks out there who need a little bit of that? I love that question. Uh, and thank you for, yeah, for, for bringing it to this moment. We have a ministry in our church called Change Groups, which is many churches have this as like an emotionally healthy spirituality group. Mm-hmm. Um and one of the unofficial slogans of that group that's emerged is a phrase called risk brings change. Mm. And if you've ever been a person who's like working through uh, like relational wounds, you know this to be true. Like you're maybe afraid of having a conversation with somebody. So you take a risk in texting them. And it's that risk that begins to unravel some of the fear, unravel some of the antagonisms in that relationship and lead to change. I think that same thing is true of our, our whole faith. That small risks we take have a generative effect in the world around us. They bring change. And it may not be huge change, but that's actually the the beauty of small risks in the beginning is that like a small seed, like a garden that we are tending, a small project we do with those that we love, even when they fail, they have an effect in the world around us. And fail is, you know, quote unquote, whatever that means. They have an effect in the world around us to show us that something else is possible. Maybe I never talked to my neighbor and now I go talk to my neighbor and I find something out about them. Like it's not huge, but now I've learned something that's possible in my neighborhood or a bunch of friends got together and we did a dinner or threw a barbecue or started a nonprofit. And all of a sudden we're beginning to see what is possible when people in a place driven by a beautiful imagination take risks together something becomes possible that informs our imagination even more to believe and hope even more. So risk brings change. I love it. I love it so much. Thank you. I just, it makes me anxious to get into the practice and to encourage practice because it will enhance and increase imagination. And like you said, it's generative and it's just, um, that's that's just a beautiful thought to leave us with. So thank you once again uh, for being here. You guys check Johnny out, grab his book, uh, listen to anything he has to say. I think <laughs> you will be blessed. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Yes, we really you, appreciate it. Continue to do so. We, as great as this was, we we will try to live up to this again in the next, uh, next episode of the podcast. So thank you all. And uh, if you have any questions about Jesus Collective, you can, we'll put that stuff in the description and um, yeah, just have a great week. You guys be blessed. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out jesuscollective.com where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you. So feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at jesuscollective.com. Until next time.